My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined again uh, by my dear friend, Mary Harrington. Uh, she is a famed reactionary feminist, uh, a contributing editor at Unheard. Uh, and as I said, a dear friend, um, welcome back, Mary. Thank you for having me, Alex. Um, it's, it's great for you to be back. I mean, things have changed since the last time you were here, which is about probably a little bit, a little more than a year ago, because you were one of the first guests on this, uh, fledgling podcast. Um, and, uh, your star has risen, uh, your projects have, have grown. They are a multitude and your newest project, uh, is, um, a book, a book that is not out yet, a book that is still being processed called, mm -hmm. um, Feminism Against Progress. Um, Mary, what do you have against progress? You hate puppies and rainbows as well, or what's what's the deal? <laughs> it's it's not a thing, Alex. I mean, you know that as well as I do. Come on, yeah, progress is not a thing. It's a it's a story we tell ourselves about about how the world is organised that that gets used to justify all kinds of stuff, and you know things that like they're getting better from one perspective, but you know, I'm not convinced that the sum total of things which are better outweighs the sum total of things which are worse ever. Um, it really just depends on where you're standing. And by the, and you know, well, I suppose what it boils down to is that if you, if you want, if, if you want to believe in progress, you have to define what you mean by progress. And the moment you've done that, you've begged the question. You've already, you've already rigged the game in favor of whatever it was that you already believed. So, you know, if you, if you want to say that it's about it's about physical health and material living standards, then actually what you're making is a statement of values about, you know, what you think, what you think life should be about for all of us. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's a. I struggle to think of a definition of progress that you could get everybody to agree on that wouldn't wouldn't, in fact, make life worse for some people, even if even if it makes life better for others. I mean, even even rising living standards, you know, over time turns out to be contributing to I don't know, resource depletion and, you know, child child labor in the Congo to pay for our computers and um, climate change, which is which is predicted to cause the, the starvation slash migration of millions over the next 10 years or so, et cetera and so on. I mean, you know, we know we rising we know rising living standards has got has got to come to an end. You know, I'm. I'm of, I'm of the view that we're actually we're past peak everything ready, and we're now into the kicking the can down the road and hoping we can eke out eke out the illusion of you know at least standing still for for a little while longer. Um, but I've, we, we, in my view, we've already run off the wily e. coyote has run off the end of the cliff and is currently in thin air in midair and he just hasn't <laughs> quite looked down yet. Um, <clears throat> You know, there's a there's a minority subculture which I guess includes you and me of people who try and look down or glance down occasionally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it's probably no more than glancing down in my case, because there are plenty of ways in which, to be honest, I prefer to go on running on thin air for for a bit longer. But 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 in my to my eye, that's where we are. I don't believe in progress. I don't think it's a thing. Um, I think it's become a pernicious myth which is making life worse for 
more people that it makes life better for. Um, you know, the, the returns are diminishing so fast that the, the case of people for whom progress still looks believable is shrinking by the day. And the war between those people and everybody else is intensifying. And if anything, what's, I suppose, the sort of the, the governing sign of everything which has happened since we last spoke on this podcast is probably that war intensifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, you focused specifically on how this, what, what you're describing, you know, the, the non-existence of progress um, affects women. Um, I mean, why um, kind of highlight this aspect in particular? Why does, well, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, argument, the argument I want to put forward in Feminism Against Progress is that progress as we understand it, um, you know, this, this idea that there's a sort of never-ending never ending arc of improvement that's both moral and material, you know, is more, is more an effect of the industrial era, era than it is an objective reality. And that we've now well and truly left the industrial area. We're into something new. You know, I call it for for, for short the cyborg era. You know, sort of the the increasing interdependence of human and digital entities, if you like, um, the transition from real to knowledge economies. Um, you know, a, a rolling out of internet power laws into every into ordinary IRL existence, etc., and so on. I mean, this is all this is all stuff that a number of your um, your correspondents on this podcast cover from different angles. Um, but trying to make sense of the cyborg era is, is, to my eye, really what what your podcast guests are collectively doing. Um, but from my perspective, um, the the myth of never ending progress. Um, made sense in the industrial era because it kind of looked true you know material you know physical living standards were getting better you know progress in the sense of people becoming freer also looked like it was happening you know at least if you if you ignored the people in in the developing world or you know the ones who in the servant class who were making it all possible etc and so yeah at least for the people who are in charge of telling the stories about what our culture is doing and where history is going Progress, progress was real. It was definitely happening. Um, and that's trickled down the value chain to an extent. But, you know, pretty much as at the point where it's reached the bottom of the value chain or the, the point where progress is meant to be being rolled out to absolutely everybody is also the point where we've run out of room to progress onto. You know, we're, we're now, in my view, as free as it's possible to be. And we've also entered a new age, uh, which is enabled more by digital culture and the way that's transforming technology and the way, the way we organize work and our lives. And, and in my view, the, the, the forms of progress, which were specific to women, um, which emerged under the industrial era, um, once you apply those in the cyborg era, don't actually make things better, they make things worse. Certainly, they, for all but a very, very small minority of extremely elite women, they make things worse. So if you look at I mean, the what I think of as the arc of feminist progress in the industrial era, that looks like, first off, women being able to step away from the life of a farmer's wife. You know, I'm, I'm generalising, obviously, there are many women in many different situations. But if we're talking about bourgeois women in the West, um, the, the, the dominant story is one of ordinary, sort of ordinary middle class women um, no longer having to work as farmers' wives and be, being able to become, uh, in effect, bourgeois housewives. Um, so that's so that's progress. Progress step one 
is it, life is just less of a grind. You know, maternal mortality goes down, the number of children women had goes down. This all happens very, very quickly in the 19th century. Actually, it started, started with the French Revolution, the great demographic transition, they call it. Um, women just stopped having so many children. And there are all, all kinds of theories about why women stopped having so many children. But I think if you if you live on a farm, you want as many hands as possible. <laughs> you want as many as many people to help out as possible. But if you live in if you, if you live in in a smaller compound, or you live in a city, or um, or life is just easier, and you have that measure more control, um, maybe maybe you just don't want to do that. So so women women start having fewer children, and then the next the next step is that. The, the next phase on from that was women. Women demanded the vote, and, the, and it, which was justified. I mean, I know you you have some reactionary correspondents who would respectfully or not so respectfully disagree with that. But it, to my eye, it was it was legitimate and completely just for women to demand the vote because they actually lost power under the under the transition from an agrarian to an industrial life. You know, women w- women existing interdependently with men in a in an agrarian setting uh, do as much economic productive work as the men do. They just do it in a slightly different domain. And Ivan Illich is great on this. In his book Gender, he sets out um, how men's work and women's work, you know, in a pre-modern setting, is 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 strictly is is gendered all over the world. And it's only under it's only with the entry into modernity and into the the order of um, the, the order of industrial economy, that this idea appears that you can disaggregate, you know, somebody's sex from the work that they do, um, and and in his view, that actually that actually disempowers women because it because it shifts it shifts women from the order of the the, the, the order of gender to the what he calls the order of economic sex. Which, which, in his view, is, is more sexist because it effectively it confines women to a, a non-productive existence, or at least it does so initially. Um, in that, women, women, women now stampede into this life as a bourgeois housewife, where essentially they're just consumers. You know, they're not looking after the chickens and making the clothes and growing the food and and doing all of that with like ten kids underfoot. Um, you know, instead of being equally equally productive agents in an agrarian um, in interdependent agrarian community, they're now they're now not exactly free riders, but they're not economically productive in the same sense. And a lot of a lot of the ideological argument about the proper role for men and women in the 19th century, which now gets dismissed as sort of patriarchal humbug under the so-called cult of domesticity, was really about women renegotiating some renegotiating a valued role for themselves. You know, women saying, "No, actually, we're the angel by the hearth. You know, we're the guardians of higher moral values. You know, we're, we're educating the children. What we're doing, what we're doing matters." And you know, and this is a. If you looked looked at at scale, this is a, a straightforward politically necessary from women's point of view because otherwise they really are going to be treated with contempt because because they no longer have the economic leverage that they used to have. Um, and then, but but then inevitably, um, in within within the order of of the economy where productivity is is associated with wages and working outside the home. Um, it just it just doesn't really work in the end because it, because ultimately ultimately power rests power rests with men and it, within the within the order of economic sex or at least it, it rests with people who are economically productive agents. So inevitably, women start ag- agitating for the entry into the workplace. Inevitably, women start agitating for um, political personhood under you know, under under the franchise, which is which is the the, the emerging form of political participation under the order un, in in modernity. Um, because I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You know, there are some women who can. It's it's all very. You can make it work if you have a if you have a kind a husband who likes you, and 
and you have a husband who likes you and enough funds to get by. You know, the, the sort of bourgeois, the cult of domesticity works fine. But if you have a tyrannical husband or a husband who beats you or, you, or who, who, who spends all of the money, it sucks. Um, and there's and there's no way out. There, there's no legal there's no no legal means of redress. You have no political agency. So of course, you know, as a matter of justice, women started agitating for those things, <laughs> and then that 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 gets us into the 20th century where we've got um, women women stampeding into. I mean, I'm I'm glossing over so much stuff, and of course, there's so much richness and complexity to it, and internal arguments within the movement. And, but then the, the the next the next step on from that in the sort of industrialization of the relations between men and women is the is the tech the technological fix to reproductive asymmetry which is the next big revolution which happened in the 1960s you know when this is mm-hmm. uh, this is again something which which comes up I I know a fair bit and he's something you've discussed with Indian Bronson on the podcast it's a favorite topic of his I know and <laughs> something you and I talk about as well you know the the technological fix to reproductive asymmetry, which emerged, which which happens in the nineteen sixty, just transforms everything because suddenly it becomes thinkable to disaggregate um, economic agency altogether from reproductive sex, or at least to to pretend uh, to pretend that the default setting for women's fertility is off, um, which which obviously has has immense transformative effects on collective on social and sexual mores, and also enables enables us all to dream of a de-sexed person um you know th- this idea that human beings are hum- human human personhood is separable from our physiological sex if you <laughs> and fast forward fast forward several more you know, a bunch more decades medical technology gets a bunch better and the internet persuades us all that actually our selfhood is separable from uh, our, our social self is separable from our um, embodied existence and you have you have a bunch of people who are saying no actually I can be any sex I want to um, because look here's the medical technology and look I've grown up on the internet socializing in a disembodied way and actually trans rights are human rights and you can see you can see where they're coming from it's understandable but you know the the costs <laughs> the, the costs of, of rolling that out you know of entrenching that in law are are immense not for the bourgeois elite women who are ramming it through um, you know for for those guys who are mostly knowledge workers, it's largely in this, largely still in their class interests to to entrench in law the idea that that biological sex isn't isn't really a thing, because that makes it easier as a knowledge worker to foreclose the possibility that somebody might discriminate against you because of your sex. And I mean, if you're a lawyer, it doesn't really make much difference whether you're whether you have Bob's and Virgin or uh, or the other set it just it doesn't really matter because you know cognitively you know it's neither here nor there you're, you're just you're doing knowledge work right but if you if you go further down the food chain it matters a lot and the and the knowledge work you know the the the, the barristers and the ceos don't really don't really like to think about this or they don't care or they just never really gave it any thought but you know obviously if your if your job is manual uh, it makes a great deal of difference what sex you are because physiologically you're going to be more or less strong you know and if you if you work in a if you work in a factory, then you know the question of whether or not you have periods is is probably going to affect your productivity. Um, you know, there's a there's a good reason why there isn't an active feminist movement campaigning fifty fifty representation of women in the scaffolding trade. You know, I mean, it's 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 so the reason for that is so obvious it doesn't even need pointing out. But nobody talks about it because actually the 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 movement fifty fifty representation of women in careers is is mostly a knowledge worker thing. Again, for reasons which should be pretty obvious to anybody who's a regular listener of your podcast <laughs> and to think about the kind of things that get discussed here. Um, so, and nonetheless, um, the, this idea of a de-sex, disembodied, meat-lego human person um, is 
is being pushed really hard, especially by graduate, highly paid female knowledge workers because it's in their class interests. And in the meantime, it's ending. I think there was a there was a recent case that there was a recent case reported on of a female prisoner in California who was raped and impregnated by a transgender, uh, a male, lady. Imp- uh, yeah, but but by, who was raped and impregnated by Lady Dick in prison. And you know, there, there's a reason why prisons are single sex. And I mean, may, may, you you might say, well, you know, who cares about incarcerated women? Well. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the what the statistics are in California, but in the United Kingdom, most women who are incarcerated are are there for shoplifting or, um, or or not paying their TV license. And and this uh, this idea that this idea that it should be legitimate to incarcerate them with with men with males who might be who might be there for I don't know kiddie porn or something is just is just beyond barbarous. And yet it's happening because it's in the class interests of women at the top of the food chain, and that that makes me really angry. I mean, I think as a feminist, that makes me really angry. Um, and as a as a critic of progress, that makes <laughs> as a progress atheist, that makes me boilingly angry. So, I, but I don't know if that's a is an extremely long answer to your question. Um, no, but, it's a it's a very good answer to my question, and uh, I, I love the fact that you kind of t- uh, dragged us through history to <laughs> present why why this is a, why this is a you know kind of reached um, a, a boiling point at this uh, at this moment, um, and. I think the you know the um um oh, I had a I had a very good point which I completely spaced on. Uh, but my next question was essentially related to um abortion because this is now the thing that uh, is is on everyone's mind um with the uh changes happening in the US um maybe happening it's all still kind of up in the air um but abortion plays into this quite deeply and in a you know what what is the the, the reactionary feminist take on uh, on abortion how should we think about it oh god <laughs> this this one's this one's really difficult and i'm well I'll, I'll start from the top shall i in my view um abortion as legal abortion is the keystone of what i <laughs> of what i've what i've taken to calling cyborg theocracy i borrowed the meme from somebody else um, but the, the, my my thesis is that the, at the point at the at the point where we entered the contraceptive and the digital revolution, that's the point where we left the industrial era. So actually, we've been we've been out of the industrial era for fifty for fifty odd years. Um, it, it was the sexual revolution and the and and the concurrent actually digital revolution. The internet was invented around the same time as the pill was legalized. Um, and that was that was what precipitated our entry into the cyborg era, because those, those were the those were the twin things that enabled women to disaggregate ourselves from our reproductive potential, and all of us to to unmoor ourselves from physical constraints, you know, whether of our own like wetware computing power, or I mean, <laughs> or of you know, physical distance, or of or really the, the the need to be in a physical body while socializing which is where we are now i mean i'm talking to you here on the screen but you're actually you know a number of hundreds of miles away from me in a different time zone um and all of these things just feel completely ordinary and familiar now because they because we've been in the cyborg era for half a century um but they're they're really gathering steam now because most of the, the people who remember who the people who were properly the, the people <laughs> Because the guys who remember the industrial era proper have mostly died out, lovely, mm-hmm. um, and and the the, people, the ones who are now in charge are the boomers who were who who grew up who were born around the beginning of the cyborg era, so they just don't really remember the before times. So, 
remind me what your question was again sorry abortion <laughs> abortion yeah right. so 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 abortion is really the keystone of of our entry into the cyborg era um in the sense that well i mean it, it sort of depends on where you want to stick the pin but the but but I, I think the important thing is you you have to see birth control and abortion as two parts two sides of the same coin or as two parts of the same story, because once once you introduce reliable birth control into the mix, that's when that's that's the point where you've you've introduced a technological fix to the problem of reproductive asymmetry. This is the the, the very straightforward and very difficult to avoid fact that the costs of casual sex are just orders of magnitude higher for women than they are for men. And, you know, for millennia, you know, for, for the entirety of human history up to the 1960s, um, that was that was just a fact. And all of all of social mores reflected that. And what, what now gets painted as patriarchy and as, you know, the oppression of women and the desire to control women's bodies was mostly a pragmatic recognition of the, of the fact that the costs for women are considerably higher for men of casual sex and that fatherless children are a burden on society. And everybody has to deal with that. That's not just that's not a problem you can individualize. Um, but of course, well, but, but then once you introduce a technological fix into the picture, the, the whole the whole dynamic changes, and suddenly, theoretically at least, it's possible to imagine that women can play the field to the same extent as men, and that female sexuality can can flourish and and, and skip gam- gamble free through the green fields like the sexuality of men, and that that's all actually going to be brilliant. Um, however, no no contraceptive method is foolproof. You know there are there are there are always going to be oops babies. You know even a ninety nine point nine percent effective method is has still got that point one percent of times when it isn't. So in, invariably you're still going to get accidental pregnancies. And I believe the data from America. I don't I don't have data from the UK on this, but I believe the data from America show that in fact the the, the total number of accidental pregnancies went up after the introduction of birth control, not down as its advocates believed, for the simple reason that the, the total amount of casual sex went up. Because people said you know, because the social mores changed so radically that just a lot a lot more people were having were having sex with with people they weren't married to, um, or with people they did they really didn't want to spend the rest of the next eighteen years raising a child with in any case, um, and so so the total number of accidental pregnancies actually went up, um, and and in in turn that created uh, a growing feminist pressure towards legalizing abortion because at the end of the day if you're going to have uh, mass casual sex. If you're going to normalise and women having sex with people they don't plan to raise a child with for the next 18 years, you you have to have a backstop, and it becomes very difficult in you know in in that context to argue for the justice of um, norm, normalising the shagging um, and banning the backstop. That's just real. That's just grossly unfair. And and this is this is roughly the the liberal feminist position now, or at least the moderately sane liberal feminist. We'll get onto the demons in a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But the you know the 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 sane liberal feminist position now is like, look, you know, people the people are shagging, and if you if if you if you're going to shrug your shoulders at that, and then and then say, well, you can't have the you can't have the backstop. That's just grotesquely unfair to women. And you know the the feminists who say, and there are there are plenty on the right who say, well personal responsibility and I, I think it's not unreasonable to say to those people you, you really just sound like you hate women um, <laughs> you know I can't I can't obviously have I don't know in, have insight into other people's minds but it certainly doesn't it doesn't feel very just um so that's so that's the the liberal feminist argument for abortion but of course once you have abortion then you 
it becomes the cornerstone for a whole series of arguments which have followed subsequently about what a person actually is, which is to say, you know, for, for both men and women, the re reproductive potential is, is switched off by, by default. You know, all of us are a sort of sexless, you know, interchangeable human being with, with body parts that we can plug in or unplug or remove or remodel as we see fit. Um, all of us are could do could theoretically do any job we wanted to because that's that's equality and and and, and all of us have now just just sort of entered this desexed, increasingly mind body dualist, uh, really really sort of gnostic fantasy of of what a human person is, and that furthermore. You know the the absolute foundational cornerstone of that is this idea that none of our no uncho no unchosen obligations are legitimate, and that that's true to the extent that we're willing to 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 kill a potential life that's growing inside a woman, in order in order to under you know we we demand the legal right to kill an unborn baby in order to if, if it's if that unborn baby is an unchosen obligation. Um. So unchosen obligations are so bad that defending defending the right only to choose our obligations, you know, goes goes as far as being able to just to snuff out another potential life. So so that is that is roughly, I mean, it's, and, and so so really, it's the cornerstone of the sort of really radically individualist, what I call biolibertarianism. This idea that you know our our embodiment should be wholly subject to our individual choosing. Um, it's it's the cornerstone of biolibertarianism. Um, now, and so when you ask what the reactionary feminist stance is, I mean that this is the this is the reactionary feminist critique mm -hmm. of of abortion. You know, it's in in a sense it ended. You know, if you want to think, if you think of feminism as I do, as properly properly understood as the process of negotiating between men and women how to live together in in whatever whatever your material conditions are you know and, and and what that looks like in practice will vary enormously depending on your context so 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 that that to me is the proper proper job of feminism and and that's not going to go away because men and women are different and our interests don't always overlap and and that's that's always going to be a political question you know how we how we try and square that so we can continue to live together because the reality is that most of us do want to live together you know, I, I I like men. You know, well, I I like I like many men, um, and uh, and I, I dare say, I, I dare say the same is true of most men. They they like many women. You know, most of us most of us want to would prefer to get on than not, and you know, there's perpetual state of you know mutually hostile sex wars just as benefits nobody. Mm. Um, so that's so 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 to my eye, that's the that's the proper role of feminism, or. But if but uh, but the point where it becomes where, where you start to conflate feminism with this idea that we all of us are entitled to transcend every possible limit of our bodies, then I that, then I dissent strongly from that, and 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 it, from that point of view, the that from that point of view, the reactionary feminist critique of abortion as being the cornerstone of the, the cornerstone of that biolibertarian mindset, you know, which which claims the mantle of feminism in the twenty first century. You know, that's very feminism, at least particularly in America, is very much aligned with with this idea that we're, we're all in, we we are entitled to transcend every limit of our bodies, which obviously, as I, as I said previously, only actually applies to elite elite knowledge workers. 
because everybody else knows everybody else sort of lives lives much more in the real world and the real economy and knows that there are that that's only true within limits but no nonetheless you know elite elite female elite knowledge workers are the ones who who have the mic most of the time so so that's that's what we get um what what this means what what this would what this would mean in policy terms from a reactionary feminist point of view i'm less sure um i I'm, I'm genuinely torn on the question of whether or not abortion should be legal. You know, there, it's, it's an immensely complex and immensely volatile question. You know, this is something I'm still thinking through, um, and something something I wrestle with on a daily basis. You know, how 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 to make sense of you know, how to square the critique with where with with what with the reality on the ground, and and where and where we go next. I I, I don't know what the answers are to that. You know, it's something I think about a lot. You know, I, it's something which I want to tackle in the book, but that's that's about two chapters hence, and I'm I'm still on the I'm still on fully automated luxury gnosticism. At the moment. <laughs> um, I'll, I'm going to get to policy in the last part and have some fun making that as radioactive as possible, but I'm not there yet. Yeah, I, I uh, completely echo this this sentiment because this is something I think about as well. Because I, th- I think we're at the point in in kind of this collective critique that's now bubbling up, you know, from from people like you and other people who come on this podcast to realize that okay, we we cannot divorce from nature. We have to recognize nature, but kind of how to integrate the fact that nature is indeed red in tooth and claw, um, and there are extremely vicious and violent things, um, you know at the heart of nature that uh, abundance and technology and all of these have, have liberated us from in, in, in quite a direct way. And the fact that it's, a, it's essentially a revealed preference for a lot of people to divorce themselves from these unchosen bonds. Like they, you know, if you, you can have a multi-generational home right now if you move in with your parents, but right. who wants to do that? Um, you know, you could have, uh, you could get married. You could really Anyone could get married, essentially, if you're willing to compromise enough uh, and, and, and go out there. there. There are many ways to retie these, these, these broken bonds, but a lot of people essentially choose not to. Um, and there, there is a reason why they make these choices, because like you said, you know, the feminism should be the negotiation of how we live with men. But we don't have to live with men and living with men has downsides. You know, like you said, you know, you could have a good husband or you could have an abusive husband or someone someone who's constantly, you know, playing power games with you because, you know, we have conflicting interests. Um, it's 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 a hard one. And to be honest, it, it all kind of leads me back to religion. Like if there is no kind of transcendent set of of commandments of how one should engage outside of just, you know, micro negotiating and, uh, you know, kind of this, this liberal stance of how does the individual feel today? It feels like it's very hard to, to get that coordination without an external framework. Um, I don't know. Is that something you touch on in the book as well? <laughs> I haven't really got, <laughs> I, really got, I don't think I'm going to have much space to get on to to, to, to get onto religious frameworks and I'm trying to sort of I'm, I'm trying not to make it a book of a uh, theory of everything I mean I, I think you're 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 absolutely spot on there um, it's and and what what we do what any of us is proposes to do about that I, I don't know um because really well on the on the religious question we are we are where we are and the the closest the closest credible candidate we have to a religion that really inspires people is not one that I think either you or I would sign ourselves up to. <laughs> and you know, you know what I'm talking about there. <clears throat> you know, there's a yeah, this is sort of rather, rather the opposite. 
Yeah, Imminentizing the eschaton. That's uh... <laughs> yeah. No thanks. <clears throat> but but when when you when you're faced with the fact that the that the the the, the ascendant the ascendant religious movement of the day is rainbow Satanism, then <laughs> the the yeah yeah no I literally said that I, I then it's it's very difficult to see uh it's it's very difficult to make the case for whatever the opposite of that is because you know, it's it's difficult even to get people to agree on what the well on, on what the counterpoint to that actually ought to be. Uh, I mean, it's certainly it's certainly true in my observation that people people of any faith at all now have more in common with one another than than any of them do with with the other lot. Yeah, I feel like that's that's essentially the the uniting principle that we have now, and essentially also uh, a reason for all the schisms that are happening. Uh, you know, now that I feel you know, kind of the, the dissident right. I don't know if you essentially associate with this, but you're adjacent to the dissident right at least. Um, it's uh, you know. It's ascendant. There are there are people paying attention. You know, we've both been slightly mentioned in a Vanity Fair article, which is still slightly surreal to me. Um, and uh, yeah, I think mine was more of a subtweet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's. I think even more powerful because you're essentially you, you've given birth to this concept, and it's you know it's it's already a a, a faction within you know. Uh, within this coalition of misfits, um, it's a meme. It's a meme. It's <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful meme. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, it's it's hard for for some reason it's hard to do podcasts in the morning because my brain's still a little bit like <laughs> it's a little bit slow. Um, but uh, what I want to say, yeah, the, the the idea that kind of unites us all is the fact that you know there has to be um, an external transcendent standard which is, you know, why we've also kind of departed from the IDW because they also don't think that there has to be an external transcendent standard or, you know, a set of rules that are fixed, surprised, and they don't evolve, they're not subject to progress. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why everyone else is at the fringes now. So essentially you have kind of the, the core of liberalism or, you know, the progressives, they have pretty much the same, you know, the same view of, of life uh, as the the wokesters they just think it's it's gone too far um and we on the other hand uh you know have a completely different perspective on 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 how things should be yeah I'm, i mean to, to my eye the best candidate for getting us out of this mess is probably probably natural law uh, i mean by that by that i probably don't mean exactly the same thing as for example a catholic theologian would mean but one of, one of the things I found really interesting as I've been working on the book um, is you know, in looking looking at the looking at this question of what happens to the differences between men and women, which exist. You know, they're in a lot of cases they're not they're not huge, and you know, in many contexts they're pretty trivial, but they exist and at scale they matter politically. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting looking at how looking at the the, the process of trying to do away with them over the course of the industrial era, this, uh, this sort of utopian um, pursuit of absolute sameness between the sexes, is that in every, in every context that I've looked at it, um, it the, the utopian pursuit of sameness doesn't make those differences go away. It just reorders them to the market. Mm. Um, so, so you know, in the in the in the so-called sexual marketplace, you know, this this utopian idea that we'd all just be able to gamble free in the sex in the sunlit sexual uplands, you know, which was Jermaine Greer's 
fantasy um, did, didn't actually work out like that. And what and instead what you get is this really grim marketplace where PUAs are facing off against female dating strategists, <laughs> um, you know, and, and both both of them are armed with with normat- an understanding of the normative patterns that men and women have in, in their mating preferences and are using those either as weapons in an attempt to get the other side to put out or as def- or or as defensive strategies against being against being manipulated in that way by the other side. And so so in a sense, you know, the 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 normative differences between us don't go away. They just become, they just turn into a supply and demand problem. Um, and what but and they so so that's the that's the black pill. But the white pill, possibly, is that in fact there is an objective reality out there, contra the IDW. You know, there is the, you know, and the, but the, it might not be something that we can grasp and define intellectually, but it's something that we can sense in a gestalt way. And that mm-hmm. perhaps if, if we can keep our, keep our attention at least partially on that, that sort of, that gestalt sense that there is, that there are, there are normative pattern realities out there, which we can discern and that we can, we can order our lives to, we might actually be able to get somewhere and we might actually be able to coordinate. So I think that's probably the white pill. Yeah, that um, they would. Probably say that yes, if these realities are based, you know, uh, on on empirical findings, or that they're if, if they're downstream of science, then I think the IDW would accept that because I think they they intuit that there are these these patterns. I think just the the tools, uh, the the burden of proof that they would require is one that I don't think that reality can you know can pony up. It's just, it just doesn't uh, you know ethical realities are not the same as um, as I don't know, whatever two slit experiments in, in in quantum physics, it just doesn't doesn't work like that. Right, because there are there are always exceptions, and at the level of sort of intellectual argy-bargy, you can always point to the exceptions as though they as though they disprove the rule. Uh, but but in I suppose they. I don't. I, I don't really know what the IDW take on this would be. But you know, from from the point of view, from from the sort of moral normative perspective. Um, the, the the pattern language of human nature is absolutely the point, you know, and exceptions to it are really neither here nor there. You know, there are there are always going to be exceptions, you know, that that that, that doesn't invalidate the need the need for some for some moral guardrails for you know, some, if not most of the time. And and so I think once you start once you start looking at the pattern language of human nature, um you are you are back onto terrain where you can start making Norm, prescriptive normative statements about what is or is not a better a better way for for us to interact with one another um and, and you know of course but then then you're back in you're back into the absolute you know the absolute blood and guts of politics because there are always going to be groups who who are who are more or less more or less constrained by whatever it is that you're saying and yeah and, and that's that's the blood and guts of politics you know there's this special pleading by whoever yeah and i think you know based because because we're kind of um, an empire built on on the the substructure of of, of Christianity or you know Judeo Christianity whatever you want to call it um, the idea of the 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 outcast the misfit you know the the, the minority is you know is it's essentially the only the only kind of um, spiritual substructure that survived it's the idea that you know you you do not uh, oppress the 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 underdog uh and that gives the underdog an insane political leverage which you can see in 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 all of these convulsions like there's one thing you don't do is um is create these exceptions you know but these exceptions 
if you want to have any sort of moral, you know, normative, uh, stable structure, these exceptions will have to be exceptions. They won't have, they won't flow into, um, you know, reconstructing the system every time someone shows up and says, actually, this uh, has disparate impact, essentially, which is, you know, uh, one of the, the, the cornerstones of civil, civil, civil rights legislation, which has kind of trickled out into the world now. Absolutely. I think that the, uh, the, the difficulty is, I mean, as as I see it, there's a kind of it works as a sort of two step um, in that the, the step one is that the 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 oppressed the oppressed exception the underdog gets leveraged or gets gets sort of in, mo- gets mobilized to argue for the utopian destruction of some some constraint or other um, and the and. And, and we're sold greater freedom and general and gambling sunlit uplands for everybody as a consequence of, of getting rid of that constraint. But then what happens? Because because that hasn't in fact because it hasn't in fact liquefied human nature. What then happens is that the market flows into that space, and 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 what, whatever it is that you've liquefied gets reordered under the sign of the market, whether it's sex or whether it's human reproduction or whether it's our our literal embodiment, you know, which is no. Because I mean, the the contemporary push, of course, now is to liquefy the liquefy the idea of human nature at the level of sex dimorphism. This idea that this actually genuinely shocking idea that I see increasingly um, in in the discourse around trans rights that that children's natural puberty should be interrupted. That the default should be interrupting children's natural puberty until they've chosen whether or not they want to undergo it. This idea that unchosen obligations even extend to the, the normal development of your sex body, and uh, you, you can now buy T-shirts for be, trans women are now you can now be seen wearing T-shirts that say "I survived test- testosterone poisoning," and by testosterone poisoning they mean male puberty, mm. which is a normal and natural process. But yeah, but but seen seen from seen from this mirror world where all unchosen physiological and moral obligations. Are anathema, and in fact, the default should be switching all of those things off unless and unless people actively opt in. Um, and so, and, and and of course, that's that that's an extremely lucrative space. So the market flows in, and and all of a sudden, you know, this in, we we move from a space where actually your puberty is just something which happens to you, to the to puberty being an opt-in thing which you can buy in customized form. You know, where you just want a little bit of puberty, or you want you want bobs but no vagine, or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and and uh, which of course, you know, there, there's a bunch of people coining it. There's a bunch of people, you know, the 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 marketing, um, you know, custom custom body parts um, is is growing every year. I think it's it's growing sort of you know ten fifteen percent year on year at the moment. If I the data, if my memory serves me, uh, but but behind that as well, I I, I see I, I don't I, I think the stakes are much bigger because actually the push here isn't to you know the the focus is on is on sex dimorphism because it's so fundamental, but the push is actually just to deregulate physiological human physiology. All of it, just just to deregulate or deregulate the human body, um, you know, much the same way as the financial sector was deregulated in the eighties and nineties. Um, and the, the the potential the potential upside from a commercial point of view, once the market flows into that, is is just is is limitless because at that point you're into hacking human beings and you've abolished all of the possible moral prescriptions that there might be against doing that. 
uh, you know, and, and where, where we really are into, you know, WF, WEF, Great Reset, you know, another penny in the Alex Jones jar territory at that point. <laughs> because you, because once you've once you've abolished any legal or moral standing for the idea that humans have a nature, then humans are infinitely hackable. Um, which you know, to, to me is a is a profoundly frightening prospect. Um, because you know, they they see the sort of sci-fi horror movie territory potential for that is, is so so immense and so deeply disgusting um but but that's that 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 is essentially the that, that that's the political debate that we're having at the moment you know the the utopian vision is one that frees all of us from our unchosen physiological obligations the the market reality is infinitely hackable human beings who's who've been privatized as you know, meat commodities by the biotech industry yeah. You know, and I, you, you, and maybe, you, maybe you're maybe you going to put an Alex Jones tinfoil hat on me at this point, but I, I but but to me, it's 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 in the mail. It's coming. Yeah. Unless no. we can find unless we can find some way of um, re reinvigorating reinvigorating the idea of natural law or the people's capacity to to discern and to understand the moral force of um, the the pattern language of human embodiment and and actually the human moral universe. Yeah, there's a, you know, essentially a, a lot of the things that have happened here. And, you know, like you said, you know, the writing's on the wall. Um, these these wheels are have been put in motion. Any sort of slippery slope argument that was made even, you know, five years ago is completely laughable. Now, the slippery slope is an, is an iron rule. It's not a fallacy. Um, and it's also tied into uh, technology. Um, I think how, you know, it's, you know, natural law is one thing, but the fact that you know, any sort of addition, additional technology is seen as an, an unalloyed good at the moment. Uh, I think that's, that's you know, the, all of these things are impossible without without the technology to actually accomplish them. Um, do you think some form of, um, I don't know, primitivism or, or um, you know, Ludditism or something that actually uh, attacks the heart of technology? Because I know, for example, James Poulos was on, and he's kind of, a, in a way, a techno-optimist. He, you know, he says, okay, we need to catechize the bots. We need to adopt technology and take it. But technology has, I feel, a mind of its own, depending on what exactly it does. You know, like the, the atom bomb can probably be used for bombing and not much more. And if you have, you know, uterine transplants, they'll be used for uterine transplants and not much more. So, you know, it depends, you know, the technology kind of has a, um, a utility embedded in, into it. So if, if it exists, it will be used. Um, can we, you know, pull back from the brink just by law alone or will it have to be some, some you know, smashing of the machines involved? I don't know. I, I've been... This is this is a kind of live conversation between me and Paul Kingsnorth, um, who's another another tech, another tech doomer, um, and, and recovering environmentalist. He calls himself. Um, you know, we, he and I have a. There are a lot of overlaps between um, what I what I call you know, fully automated luxury gnosticism, and he just he call he characterizes as the machine. I mean, his his take on this is that fundamentally fundamentally this is not a this is not an economic or a social or a um, material crisis. This is a spiritual crisis, and therefore it needs a spiritual solution. Uh, which, I, which I guess brings us back to, um, to to the to the question of you know what 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 sort of unified coordinating um, set of values external to radical individualism is, is actually going to be able to mobilize people to the point where they say no no stop enough. Um, again, my 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 best candidate for that is the the, the Gestalt 
of you know the pattern languages in the human body and the human human social human sociality in the natural world, you know all of all of which actually you know in, interact in immensely complex ways. Um, I, I feel like the 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 closer we get to being able to you know re- readjust how we look at the world to see it not in sort of empirical sciencey you know, data gathering you know IDW terms and and to be able to adjust our focus more towards being able to grasp at an intuitive, if you like, at an aesthetic level, um, the the pattern languages in things, the closer we're going to be able to get to actually solving this problem. And for, from that perspective, actually, I, I, it's from from that perspective that I, I I enjoy the aesthetic focus that you see a lot in some dissident circles, because I think people people grasp intuitively that in fact what we need is not more not more discourse. Uh, what we need is not more not more intellectual arguments. We don't need more fucking data. You know, the last thing we need is more fucking data. We need more beauty, and we need more people who who can who who can say, well, just look at it. You can see it's beautiful, and you can see that that over there that really fucking isn't. Um, and and actually, you know, pe- people can see it. You know, a, a toddler has an intuitive sense of wholeness. You know, this is this is something. This is something which has to be bred. Has it has to be educated out of people, the capacity to see what's beautiful and to see what's whole, and to notice patterns, um, and to 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 grasp the normative nature of things. That has you know the the capacity to do that is is just there, and you and and you have to educate it out of people to turn them into rainbow satanists. Mm. And do you see a potentially kind of a revival of 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 old old school religion like i, I know paul kingsdorf is a, a a known orthodox christian he's converted um is is there a way to i don't know uh do you see any ascendant other forms of religion you know based on 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 these patterns or um is is this you know there there's one one serious you know field that uh, that uh, covers this these things and we can't really expect anything new to to show up I don't know. I mean, my gut feel on that front is that Christianity as an institutional political force is probably toast at this point. Mm. It's probably probably doomed. I mean, the Catholic Church is going down fighting, which is more than we can say for Anglicanism, which is just, you know, em- embraced and, you know, painted painted itself all over with the, the, the symbols of the new regime and is, is dancing merrily on the decks, you know, with, with, with dilated pupils, as far as I can make out. Um, you know, at least some of the Catholics are going to go down fighting the Russian Orthodox lot. I mean, <laughs> no idea what's yeah. going on there. Different that's, civilizational that's pretty, state pretty there. wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Kirill and his lot. I don't know. Don't, yeah, not completely sure what's going on there. But I think that's that's just a long way a long way outside my my manner and probably more your territory <laughs> to comment on that. Um, <clears throat> but you know, in, in terms as as the ordering institutional, you know, the the, the kind of the the real, the real world power wielding face of public morality. I think the the Christian Church in its building constructing form is probably finished. Christianity as a force in the world, I think, is a long way from over, but it's probably going to have to go underground. Um, you know, certainly if things get much worse, or get go go much further in the I should say go much further in the direction that they're they're already heading at speed, then you know Christianity will end up being being on being an underground movement. Um, much as it was, I suppose, in the Soviet Union, um, but you know, in the, in the Soviet Union and in the in the Soviet states, it turned out, you know, as, as Richard Legutko has has 
recounted being been phenomenally powerful and actually what served as an agent of serious political change over time so uh, that that's not a it's not a very definitive answer you know do i do i see some sort of great church emerging and governing us all to make it all better no mm. um do i do do i see religious faith disappearing and leaving us all um swimming on our own no i don't see that either what do you make of the um kind of the the, the Baptist uh, perspective where um essentially kind of Christianity enshrines slave morality you know it's it's not necessary um and essentially in a way they are um adopting natural law as they see it as you know um kind of embracing nature red in tooth and claw um is uh, is that you know kind of this uh, pagan vitalism <laughs> any any interesting alternative I don't know. I find, uh, I mean, that whole that whole worldview interests me, uh, but but it's uh, to me, it's a very, it's not always very coherent because bits of it, bits of it just read to me like shit livery with extra steps, <laughs> and other bits of it, other, yeah, <laughs> other, uh, other other bits of it smell like warmed over Nietzsche. Occasionally, it smells like warmed over Nietzsche via Camille Paglia, and then other bits of it feel genuinely politically urgent and necessary, and it's all mixed in together. And you know, disaggregating which which bit falls into which bucket um, is you know that's that's not something I've given enough serious attention to. I mean, in my view, Bronze Age pervert is you know Bronze Age mindset is one of the most important books politically to have been written in the last decade. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a phenomenally influential book and a phenomenally important book politically. Um, so I, I would prefer to give it some. I, I prefer to give it considerably more political, more, more sort of close. Close reading and close thought. It's a little while since I read it. Um, before I before I tried to answer that question in any sort of in any sort of coherent way, um, I think it needs needs properly engaging with. Yes, uh, Gia Benicetti was on the show very recently, um, uh-huh. and we discussed uh, kind of Bronze Age mindset. Um, and he makes the point that it's essentially it's not you know a prescriptive book. Uh, it's kind of um, it's an invocation of of you know, forces and ideas and, and concepts that, um, you know, have been dormant for, for a long time. And, it's, you know, it, it doesn't really tell you what to do, um, but it also, it kind of paints the picture of a, of a kind of um, a devitalized society and contrasts it with forces that, you know, are bubbling underneath the surface. So, you know, what you do with that, people have, are, are doing different things with that, obviously. Uh, but I guess, like you said, you know, it kind of has that, that Nietzschean core where, um, you know, it's uh, Christianity is probably not the first thing you think about once you read Bronze Age Mindset and feel like, oh, yeah, it needs to return to God. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a bit different. No, indeed. I mean, my, my sense, again, I, I'm, my, my sense is that, you know, amongst the guys who are much more engaged with that, this particular corner of the internet, there are some real disagreements between between the guys who are broadly Christian in outlook and who who are all for um, orderly family life, perhaps with a, a more generous side order of patriarchy than has recently been the case, but who are who are broadly speaking for you know living in solidarity with women and forming families and you know maybe you know have, having having a couple of acres and. You know the the whole. I don't want to say cottage core, but but the whole mm-hmm. sort of you know the the, the wholesome thing. And um, these these guys have some major points of disagreement with the you know let, let, let's all go and let's all go and be pirates of the Caribbean guys. Um, and they're too. And uh, I mean it, it might be it might be that the 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 difference is as straightforward as marital status. 
like the, the guys who reached escape velocity from a very online singledom are likely to have a different outlook um, to the guys who have not, for whatever reason. Um, so, so, so it could just be that. Um, but, but yeah, I think I think Gio's absolutely right. Um, you know, it's and and one of one of the things I appreciate about Bronze Age mindset is that it is its aesthetic rather than prescriptive qualities you know in a lot of ways actually it reminds reading it reminded me of William Burroughs um it has it has some of the same some some of the same sort of mixture of the transcendent and absolutely degenerate mm-hmm. about it as, as William Burroughs um but yeah I, I think it's you know it's an incredibly rich set of you know sort of aesthetic invitations to you know experiment with with ways of thinking or ways of being which are which are currently anathematized by by the sort of you know, the the reigning the the censorious reigning um, doctrines, um, and and from 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 that perspective, yeah, it's a yeah, it, it needs to be. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of the things I'd love to do at at some point is is read it against Camille Paglia's sexual persona because I I feel like that it's it's a it, it's in a direct line of descendant descendants from Camille Paglia in some respects, and and pro- probably needs to be read in that context certainly as a reactionary feminist. <laughs> that's the obvious companion text for something as which makes such uh, interesting reading from a female perspective as Bronze Age mindset. Yeah, I you know the, the the difference that you highlight between kind of the the trads and the the cads, or maybe less the cads, the pirates in uh, in kind of the dissident right. I think it's also a, a difference between what time they think it is in the, you know, kind of the the, this life cycle of the regime. Um, Because the the trads essentially think, um, you know, there is salvation in the local. There is salvation in, you know, kind of being embodied, you know, the the the, the people who, um, you know, are more of the pirate inclination think that, you know, all is lost. You know, this is, you know, the, the degeneracy is, is so profound that you have to compromise yourself to be in relation with any woman, you know, with, or, you know, to, to actually tie your, your life to, to a woman uh, is more of a compromise than, you know, there's, there's, there's no upside or there's very little upside that one as a man in this regime at this point in the life cycle can, can derive from, from that. And I mean, you know, this is, you know, obviously a, a personal feeling about where we are and, you know, I can't, can't fault them yeah i mean i can't i can't speak for what what the world looks like from the perspective of some of some dude in (laughs) in their 20s now you know facing the economic prospects and social milieu which seems increasingly to be on offer to guys in that context But, but 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 my sense is that you know were i in that position i'd probably probably be a considerably more blackpilled than i am and you know as as middle aged women go i'm pretty blackpilled (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I can kind of I can kind of see where they're coming from, even if it's you know even if it's it's a pretty bleak perspective, and do, doesn't doesn't bode well from where I'm sitting for for my project, which is to say you know hoping we can find some some sort of functional way for men and women to live together in the future, uh, which is I, I, you know, a, a shrinking a shrinking prospect under the current order but you know i don't i don't feel like all is all is lost and it, it saddens me deeply when i hear so so many young men say to all intents and purposes that they really do just think all is lost i, I, I find that i find that deeply sad but i also understand where they're coming from i can I, you know i hear the despair and and i can i can see how people could come to think that yeah i think it's it's also um you know, it's, it's also very much downstream from the technology that we use 
you know, if if you are the kind of person who's curious about, um, you know, about despair, about the things that there are to despair of, you know, you can find them in abundance online. Uh, and you also find people to commiserate with you uh, about, you know, I don't know, the fact that, you know, uh, two millimeters of bone will, you know, ch- changes an insult to a chad and, and things like that. And, you know, there there's obviously a grain of truth to that, um, you know, you know there, there is, uh, you know, looks maxing does work <laughs> or whatever, you know, these concepts actually, you know, have, have a, a grain of truth, but, um, um, you know, the reality is that, you know, life, life is a bit more, you know, cause this to me feels also like, you know, they're reducing everything to a marketplace, to a spreadsheet. Um, that's not exactly how people met in, in the olden days. You know, if, if, you know, once you bring things back into, into reality, the, the, the multitude of factors that go into what actually makes someone attracted to you, or, you know, that actually leads to marriage, um, you know, include, you know, the two millimeters of bone, of course, but, uh, you know, they are, they are, you know, myriad. So, um, yeah, I think kind of pulling back from that and the more people pull back from that, cause I feel, especially in the new, newer generations, people kind of feel like the, the malignancy of this. Um, and, uh, it's, I don't know, I, I feel like there's going to be a movement back to need space in some ways, you know, people just have to find themselves somehow. We need a proper, I mean, the, the sexual marketplace is obviously malign, as you say, um, but, and, and almost everybody buys into it. Um, you know, the, the feminists and the anti-feminists are pretty much on the same page about what the solution is. And it turns out the solution is more deregulation. You know, everybody thinks that, in fact, you should just legalise prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so you know, at that point, at that point, you really do just collapse sex into the market and, and, and turn them all into the same thing. You know, on the one hand, you've got the libfems shouting that sex work is work. On the other hand, on the other side, you've got the, you've got the incels saying, oh, clearly the solution is to, to female hypergamy is to to legalize prostitution and you make and, and let the let the sexual revolution run to its logical conclusion and so, so it seems to me that in fact you know they, they they might think that they're in opposition to one another but in practice they're kind of on the same side because they're arguing for the same thing which is sexual reaganism um and <laughs> i don't know I, I kind of feel like we need an anti-capitalist movement for for sexual intimacy you know we need a we, we, we we need to resist this idea that you can that in that you know, the relations between the sexes can be reduced to a marketplace you know we, we we need to we need to drag it back out of the claws of the market you know how we go about doing i've got a lot more to say about that than, than I, I can sort of i can summarize neatly and a lot of it is kind of chaotic chaotic stuff in my mind at the moment so i'm not going to risk not going to risk saying anything out loud at this point because i'll, I'll just end up um, burning myself alive um I, but I have a lot to say about that and I but it's some, again it's something I think about a lot but I, I feel like the an urgent project for anybody who wants to hold out any hope for humans really having a future at all outside artificial wounds and cyborg theocracy you know is is dragging sexual intimacy back out of the cause of the market and that's a that's a multi-pronged project um which is which is going to piss everybody off in some you know in, in various you know the policies involved in doing that you know going to make everybody angry because it, it it means everybody's going to have to pay some costs, and like you said, you know, it's a, a lot of this stuff is revealed preference in one way or another. Um, and so, so there's going to be pain all around. You know, it's, exactly. it's certainly not it's certainly not just it's certainly not just a pain for the liberal feminists. Although the you know the elite white female liberal feminist knowledge workers who are right at the top rolling out um, this 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 new world for all of us will probably enjoy it the least. 
um, <laughs> if we, if we do actually succeed in, in fighting back, but that's, that's <laughs> terrible. Absolutely terrible. I know it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's, it's terrible, pretty terrible. Yes, I I think that's that's it, and it will all be downstream from a set of values um, that is, you know, non-universal, which is also going to piss off a lot of people. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on on that cheery note, I want to ask you the <laughs> the question of the show because uh, I know we're coming up on time. Um, do you have a new, an other <laughs> subversive yeah. thinker that you think is uh, is underrated that people should check out or or read more of or just investigate? Yes, um, I want to recommend to your your listenership um, "Gender" by Ivan Illich. Um, he got um, Ivan Illich is a very unusual. He's a, a, a priest um, who lived in the United States. I believe a writer and a priest. He, he wrote he wrote on an extraordinary number of subjects, um, but his he wrote a book on on gender. Uh, it, it's called Gender, um, which which really turns on its head the entire narrative of uh, progress. And women's liberation in in ways which are just provocative to everybody. Um, um, it's it. He died before before the cyborg revolution really became mainstream. So it needs it needs bringing into the twenty first century. Yeah, you know, obviously it's a, it's sort of dot 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 the story so far. Um, but it's he got he got very vigorously cancelled for it when the book first came out. It was it was and remains an incredibly subversive book. I strongly recommend. It's short, very footnoted, um, incredibly rich resource. For anybody who's thinking in heterodox ways about the relations between men and women, so I strongly recommend Gender by Ivan Illich. Wonderful, yeah. We've we've had Ivan Illich recommend on the path, but it was just uh, tools for conviviality, and uh, I think his book on on, on medical practice as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I wasn't aware of this book, so please do check it out. And also, um, at the moment, I think Mary, uh, you can find Mary in the pages or online on Unheard. Um, and uh, also, uh, we all uh, await the book, Feminism Against Progress. You heard it here first. Um, there, you know, it's, it's coming. Um, I'll let everyone know when it is coming uh, and I'll post about it, of course. Uh, and please do follow Mary on Twitter as well at uh, Move in Circles. Um, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, you'll, you'll be back. I'm sure. I'm, I, I love speaking to you and I'm very happy that you, you were one of the first guests on this podcast. I mean, this has been a, a wonderful project and yeah, you're, uh, yeah. You're wonderful Thank yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Alex. It's been a joy as ever. Uh, we'll speak soon, I'm sure. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash subversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.